Hey everyone, it's Melanie here again, and if you heard our very brief podcast last week, you know that I shared about how our heart and desire as a ministry is to really speak for justice and to serve as true agents of reconciliation in our world. And as such, we felt that God was really leading us as an organization to pause. And we wanted to pause for three specific reasons, to pause and pray, to pause and listen, and to pause and reflect. Last week, we took some time here on Mercy Talk to just intentionally pause and pray, and we invited you to do the same. This week on Mercy Talk, we are taking some time to intentionally pause and listen. So we are really excited to share with all of you the recording of a panel discussion that was recently held at Seeds of Greatness Bible Church in Newcastle, Delaware, on the topic of racism and the many hidden injustices that are really a part of it. So Seeds of Greatness is a longtime supporter and close friend of Mercy Multiplied. And actually, the panel host that you're going to hear on this recording is is Pastor Lisa Lewis, and Lisa is actually on our board of directors here at Mercy. So we are just really thankful that they shared this very honest but important conversation around a topic that we just cannot ignore today. Um, You're going to notice that this podcast is a good deal longer than what you're used to from us, but please trust me when I say that it is going to be very much worth your time. So we just continue to invite you to join us in pausing to pray, in pausing to listen and then pausing to reflect. And we are very expectant for God to to move in a very powerful way. We love you all, and we hope that you are both challenged and also encouraged by this panel conversation. Uh, you know, in light of everything that has happened around our country, I believe that as leaders, uh, we need to speak peace and release faith into the atmosphere. Uh, some injustices have been done. And uh, we believe that it's uh, important for us to use our voice, which is a powerful tool that we have to bring peace and to bring uh, uh, restoration to what's been happening in our society. Uh, as I said before, we're, uh, we, we understand the anger and we understand the frustration that is uh, brewing in our nation because of a broken dysfunctional system. And uh, I was listening to a minister today and someone said, so does the nation need healing? And he said something very interesting. He said, well, before we can heal, first we have to change. And so we've got to make some steps towards change tonight. We want to go in a little different direction and uh, have a a, a discussion. We want to talk. And I think that's one of the things that has been lacking in the church when it comes down to uh, uh, racism in the churches, we haven't talked about it. And so tonight we're going to talk a little bit more and we're going to continue these talks as the Spirit of God directs us. Uh, Of course, tonight one nine is not going to solve the world's problems, but it can give us some information and open our eyes in some areas that maybe we've had blind spots. And so with the help of the Holy Spirit, we're going to go forward tonight. But before we do, I just want to read a quote from John Lewis, who was a civil rights leader, a senator from uh, uh, Georgia. He said he had marched with Dr. King as a college student in Selma. And he said, I know the pain, the anger and the hopelessness. Justice has been denied for far, far too long. Rioting, looting and burning is not the way. Demonstrate, vote, be constructive and not destructive. 
And that's the message we're trying to bring is a message of construction, not destruction. And so tonight, hopefully some things will be said to you that will benefit you and help you and give you some tools. And I believe that if we don't talk, we won't have a plan. And if we don't have a plan, we're not going to have a way to exit this anger and frustration that is facing our nation. We continue to pray for our law enforcement officers. We continue to pray for our communities. We continue to pray for our mayor and our presidents and those that are in government that the wisdom of God would flow through them and that the churches would become an avenue that from the pulpit, men and women of God would speak forth faith and peace to their congregations and to their communities. And we believe that this is going to turn around in the name of Jesus. So with all that being said, at this time, I'm going to turn things over to my wife who's going to moderate this panel discussion. And we ask you, if you have questions or things of that nature, to please uh, send your questions to us and my wife will give you that information. Lisa? Good evening, everybody. So glad that you are tuning in tonight. As uh, Pastor said, we are continuing our discussion and uh, we know we're not going to answer every question tonight, but we want to just continue our talk. And I'm so grateful for the panelists that have joined us tonight. I'm going to introduce them to you in just a moment. But if you do have questions, um, you can email your questions to uh, Serge Marie Pierce. And Serge's e um, email address is smpierce, P-I-E-R-C-E, at seedsofgreatness.com. S.M.Pierce at SeedsOfGreatness.org. And um, she'll, she'll pass off those questions. And at the end of our uh, discussion, uh, we'll do our best to answer your questions, okay? Uh, first of all, I just want to take a moment and introduce our panelists to you. Um, really, some of them you know and some you might not know. But uh, first of all, we have uh, Mr. Greg Nicholson. Uh, stand up, Greg, for just a second. Greg and his wife, and. No, Angie's not his wife. <laughs> I'm always giving him a new wife, <laughs> that wife. Greg and Lisa have been here at Seeds of Greatness for uh, 19 years, 18 yeah. years. Yeah, for 19 and, years. Yeah, and Greg uh, is one of the directors of our children's ministry. Yes. And his full-time job, he is a pharmaceutical sales manager, manager yes. um, and travels all around uh, the East Coast uh, helping folks to get better. Okay, and he's going to share with you. Next, we have uh, Miss Lauren Lewis. Lauren is our daughter. Um, she's 24 years old, very progressive in her thinking. She opens our eyes to many, many things. She is a paraprofessional in the a colonial school district. Um, so she's going to be sharing with you. Next, we have Antoinette Lewis, a.k.a. Nettie. And Nettie is the uh, database manager here at Seeds of Greatness uh, and uh, formerly uh, in the Christina School District. Um, next, we have Miss Sharon Hers, Mrs. Sharon Hers. Uh, Sharon, we've known her since she was a little, little girl. You may know her as the daughter of uh, Rick and Charlotte Edwards. Um, we've watched Sharon uh, grow over the years, and, and she's got something real special that she's going to share with us tonight. So I'm really pleased to have each and every one of you. What we're going to do is each panelist is going to take a few minutes. I'm going to... Um, kind of ask them a few questions and they're going to take it from there um, and we'll move throughout and then at the end as I mentioned we will uh, answer any questions that you might have. Uh, Greg Nicholson, um, we asked Greg to be a part. Greg is going to share his experience as a black man growing up in, you know, he grew up in Philadelphia, um, yes. in the city of Philadelphia and he's going to share with you some of the experiences that he's had growing up 
black in Philadelphia? Yeah, um, actually my story will include a little bit of Philadelphia and Washington, D.C., uh, where I spent a significant amount of time. Um, and, you know, when I was young, my, having a father at home was very helpful in a lot of ways because he was, a, he was someone who really taught me, you know, respect, respect authority, treat people right, treat people fair. He was a good example for me because he was involved in the community. Um, so that, that was a, a good backdrop for me because I believe that God was positioning me when I would go into some of the situations that I had probably one time too many where it could have gone a different way. Uh, but growing up in Philadelphia, being a, a young black male, even though it continued throughout my life, uh, I got pulled over a lot. Pulled over by the police? Pulled over by the police. And, uh, and I can tell you that um, in all of those times that I was pulled over, I was never breaking the law. I think one time I had a broken taillight. And I believe that I, I was given a ticket for that broken taillight that I didn't know I had because I guess the, the uh, police officer wanted to do something as a result of pulling me over. Um, but basically the scenarios vary. Um, I would get pulled over and they would ask for my license and registration. Um, and you know, I would do everything that uh, I knew to do uh, based on what I was taught and, and based on not trying to inflame the situation. Um, what I, would you do? What kind of things would you do when you were pulled over? Uh, what when, were you taught to do? I'm glad you asked. When I got pulled over, um, I didn't really think a whole lot about why. Like I, it, was, it wasn't as much about getting into the why, but really realizing that, okay, Greg, you just got pulled over. This is a police officer. You need to be respectful. You need to not make any sudden movements. You need to uh, uh, refer to him as you know, officer or sir. Uh, and basically do what you're told. And as he's asking me to do things, I need to let him know what I'm about to do. And you were taught to do that? Yes. Who taught you that? Uh, my father. And, and, there, and, and to be honest, there, there, some of that you also learned, not just from my father, but from others in my, in my community, whether my, my neighborhood, uh, uncles, and you kind of just knew that, hey, when the police pull you over, these are the things you need to do primarily with my father, but others, because you know, the, it takes a village. Um, so if you don't have a father, it doesn't mean you can't learn or be taught. Um, but I knew that I didn't want to inflame the situation because I actually saw people not do that, and it became a situation where they're getting yanked out the car and, and things can go wrong. So, uh, but, but I would get pulled over, and, 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 and um, sometimes they would just ask for more information. There were other times, I remember a time, uh, one situation distinctly, where I was driving with a friend of mine, we were driving down the street, police officers pulled next to us, we looked at them, they looked at us, and then we pulled off, and siren went off, pulled us over, license and registration, ran it, came back, asked us to get out the car, searched me, searched my buddy. Searched you physically? Searched us physically. We were on a main avenue in my neighborhood, searched me, and they wanted to see everything in the car. They went through the front seat, the back seat, the glove compartment, the, um, the trunk, everything. And they gave my license and registration back, and they didn't really tell me why they did it. Um, but I did everything that they asked me to do, and though I didn't necessarily like it, I went home. So, uh, and, and there were other instances where I got pulled over and, and uh, there were a couple times, uh, actually, probably um, the most traumatic was, uh, there were times, there were twice in my life where I was surrounded by the police 
as I look back on both of those situations, maybe one of them there was probable cause. Uh, so pull a gun on you? Well, that's the thing. What happens is after the fact, thank God, you, you, you hear what they say. Um, but the reality is it's, there's, it's, it was overblown. Um, there's, there always seemed to be more people that got involved in the pullovers that I was in than were probably needed. Um, but the reason why I say probable cause is because uh, in one of the situations they said, just like in the situation where I got pulled over once, they said that there were some people who uh, robbed something nearby, so they pulled us over. Uh, in this situation, they said they got a call that someone was robbing the store. So, you know, I guess in my own mind, I, I'm trying to make sense of it that, okay, they had probable cause, but uh, me and uh, several of my buddies, we were in the car at a gas station, and we were about to leave the gas station, and probably seven or eight cars from various jurisdictions pulled up and all around us, and they had their guns out. And, um, and I was the one in the car <laughs> telling everybody not to move, don't do anything, keep your hands in the air. So as the officers were telling us what to do, I was telling everybody in the car what to do. That's really interesting, Greg. And I, I really think, because I asked who taught you that, and you said your dad did. Yeah. And you had a village. And I wonder about, you know, African-American men who don't have a father in the house. There's nobody, that, and they don't have a, a village. So yeah. who teaches them? They're scared when they get pulled over. Yeah. So they might not have that same response. They may not know to put both hands on the steering wheels, roll down all the windows, and ask permission to get your wallet out. They might not know to do that, right? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I, I think, you know, for me, you know, I said my father, and then I said I had a village because I wanted to, in the instance that there might be people watching the show that are saying they don't have a father, you know, you know what do I do? Um, but I also know that between my father, the village, and the things that I learned over time mm -hmm. uh, were all part of it. Uh, but the other side of the coin is I think that if there are any men that are watching, I think that we really need to think about adopting or taking on that role in, in, in men's lives or young men's lives because um, if we only take care of our own, then we're allowing people that are in our community to potentially be in a situation that they wouldn't know what to do. Yeah. And it's not that they're bad people, mm -hmm. um, but they just might do something that could, could potentially cause them harm and put mm -hmm. them in harm's way. Yeah. And I think that we really need to, to try to do more. And it could be as simple as just guys in your neighborhood, guys in the church. Mm -hmm. um, it's not about saving you know, 50, but if you can find one or two kids mm -hmm. that you know um, to help them out, even though I know that as I've gotten older, it doesn't mean that I'm no longer a part of, the, of, of uh, being pulled over. Um, it has lessened, but I don't think it's necessarily associated with my age based on people that I know that are my age and older that have gotten pulled over and gotten frisked and what have you. Um, uh, the, some of the things that have changed for me is uh, I have officers get behind me now and they'll just stay behind me for a little while and then they'll you know kind of move on so fortunately i don't have i haven't had as many pullovers but i'm not oblivious to it. i think as an african-american male um it never really goes away and um and that's unfortunate but what i can tell you is is that um i'm not bitter um i, I don't have anything against uh police officers or, or people in law enforcement i have a lot of friends that are in law enforcement mm -hmm. and uh and even the, some of the men that were, and, and women that were police officers in my neighborhood, we got to know them because they walked the beat. And uh, so it's, it's just like in our neighborhood, there were a few bad apples. Mm -hmm. 
in the police force too, there could be a few bad apples. And I, and I didn't want to become what I thought that they might be pulling me over for. Mm, you know what I mean? That's good. That is, I, if you begin to do that, then you really can't be bothered by what they're doing if you're feeling the same way as them. Mm -hmm. If I don't want them to see a, a black men as all uh, thugs and criminals mm -hmm. and things like that, then I can't look at the police and say, well, they're all out to get me. Mm -hmm. I've got to take each officer uh, individually. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the right thing to do. That's good. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for sharing. Appreciate well, that. Next, we have Ms. Lauren Lewis. And um, Lauren, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. You introduced me to a term that I knew what it was about, but I never knew that there was actually a name for this. And I'm going to ask if you would define the term colorism. C-O-L-O-R-I-S-M. Colorism. <laughs> okay. So... We know racism is the ideology that one race is superior to another. Colorism is pretty much a byproduct of that. And it's something that's really entrenched in the black community and it's really, really sad. It's basically the, a prejudice towards darker complexions and showing favoritism to people who are lighter. So I'm, I didn't experience it, but I've heard parents tell their, tell their black children, like, don't stay out in the sun too long. You don't want to get too black. Or I've heard my friends that, my friends that are dark skinned, oh, you're pretty for a dark skinned girl. No, like it, your beauty or that, it has nothing to do with your complexion. And to show favoritism to someone who is lighter complected, it's, it comes from slavery. It comes from strife between field slaves and house slaves and just the, just the weird idea that because someone's lighter that they're more intelligent or they can pass for white or they're like they can pass the paper bag test, which was a test that... Well, say that again. The paper bag test, paper which bag was test. a test for black people. If you were darker than a paper bag, then you were too dark. So it's just like for an example, my sister-in-law, my sister-in-law is biracial. She's lighter than me. If we go for a job interview because of some institutional racism, looking at the two of us next to each other, they might go for Nettie because Nettie is lighter. Nettie looks closer to being white. And also me and Nettie might have the same message to say, but because I'm darker, I may seem like the angry black woman. So that's what colorism is. Even, it's so, it sounds so silly, but my brother's favorite movie is Lion King. Who's the villain in Lion King? Scar. Scar is the darkest lion. Like, it's, the, it's just the random little things that are subtle prejudices. Like, why are black cats considered bad luck? Like, why are crows considered ominous? Like, because they're black. But it's those subtle prejudices that really are woven into our society, into how we look at people. It's, it's so strange, honestly. And it started, goes back to slavery days where... Um, the house slaves were normal, many times uh, the offspring of the slave master and one of the slaves. So then he would bring that house slave into the house and she was normally a light-skinned, fair-complected girl, and right? Also, and that also has to do with even the difference in hair textures. because. Mm. Me and Nettie talk about it all the time. Like how my hair is tonight. I washed my hair tonight. I didn't straighten it. I didn't, I didn't do anything to it. But I, me and, it's sad to say, but me and Nettie always say like, we don't do ethnic hairstyles when we go for job interviews. 
I don't go to job interviews with box braids. I wait until I get the job to pull out my ethnic hairstyles, to do my twist outs or to do my box braids just because you might, you, that, because you're really judged off of your complexion, even your hair texture. That's, that's sad. Um, another uh, term I want you to define for us is institutional racism. So institutional racism is racism expressed through the practice of social and political institutions. It can be seen in disparities regarding wealth, healthcare, criminal justice, employment, housing, educational, and political power. Yeah, that's, that's really powerful. I think on Sunday, uh, Pastor uh, talked about when we, I think you did Sunday, we were looking for an apartment in Delaware and we went to this apartment complex and we were told there were no openings. That's institutional and, racism. And my sister-in-law, who lived there, I guess they felt like they had enough, um, called or went over there, and we, we, we didn't move there. Who wants to move someplace where you're, you're tolerated and not celebrated? Right. So we ended up not going there. But those things like that that are embedded in our system, mm -hmm. that if people don't get checked on it, mm -hmm. you know, it continues. Uh, you and I were talking earlier today um, about another term, affluenza, A-F-F-L-U-N-Z-A. <laughs> I'm gonna tell you what affluenza means, Lauren. Um, I know you already know this, but affluenza is a psychological condition supposedly affecting wealthy young people. Symptoms include lack of motivation, feelings of guilt, sense of isolation, and so on. There was, back in 2013, a story broke out in the news where a very wealthy uh, family had a teenage son uh, who was driving under what the influence. Kind, what kind of son did they have? He's white. Yes. He was white. And he was driving under the influence yes. and plowed into a crowd of people and killed four people. Mm -hmm. He got off because of affluenza. Right, and so he got off because of affluenza. He didn't serve jail time. He yeah, he didn't serve jail time, but it, it even goes into like, most people heard about like Brock Turner. He raped a woman behind a dumpster. He was a Stanford swimmer or something. He's a, he was a rapist. And he served, he got six months probation. And so when we think about institutional racism, that's what it is. Because I did a paper on mass incarceration, and one, uh, one statistic that I found is that a black person is likely to serve as much time, if a black person commits, say, a drug offense, a nonviolent offense, they're likely, to, they're likely to serve as much time as a white person for a violent offense. Say my brother got a gun charge. That's nowhere in my brother's future. My brother got a gun charge. He's likely to serve as much time as a rapist because he's black. That's institutional racism. And the affluenza thing um, really got to me because because he the boy was wealthy, right? He he had psychological problems. Right. And you think about the poor black kids in the ghetto when they do crimes, they're trying to maybe put some food on the table or whatever, and they they get sent to jail. They don't they don't get they any don't leniency get because of their living situation. And I think for Brock Turner, they said him serving jail time would mess up his college career. Like we have plenty of black kids that their whole li lives there's the prison there's a school to prison pipeline. 
for for black kids, mm-hmm. and it's that's institutional racism, and even how we talked about black on black crime, like it's just it's <laughs> that, all cyclical. That's that's another thing she we we discussed today, and then we're we're gonna move on black on black crime. So we we you know we were we're against black on black crime. I would I would, those words would come out of my mouth, but Lauren was like. What is black on black crime? Black people committing crimes in their own community. So if white people commit crimes in their community, is that called white on white crime? No. If Asians do it, is it called Asian on Asian crime? It's crime. So why, it's just not just crime, because I don't want to minimize criminal activity. It's crime, no matter what the ethnic group is. Right. That's, that was really interesting. Yeah. It's really some of y'all, you need to talk to some young people sometime. And not, even, even if you don't always agree. That's, that's what I was going to say. Mm-hmm. Me and my mom, we might talk about stuff and I will say agree to disagree. Or I'll pick her brain, just the whole thing with black on black crime. Blacks were redlined into areas. Blacks were in the projects. They were in the ghettos. They, like my mom said, they didn't want blacks in certain apartment complexes. So when you have all the blacks in the communities that you put them in and they commit crimes, oh, black on black crime is such an issue. There's crime in every community. All the, all, all, every community has issues. But black on black crime is still after the narrative that black people are violent, black people are thugs. Every, every community has crime. So, and sometimes we do agree yeah. to disagree. We yeah. don't agree on everything. We have something today. I was like, I don't agree with you on that, right. Laura. You know? And you don't have to. But have the conversation. You know, have the conversation. Next, Antoinette, Nettie. Nettie, in case you didn't know, Nettie is biracial. Nettie's mother is African-American, her dad is, is white, and we, we teased her, she got her hair done today, we said she's embracing her black side today. <laughs> yes. Sometimes, it, it, we, that's just a little joke that we do, y'all don't have to say that to her. <laughs> but anyway, that's just a little something. Nettie, I wanted to know, and you and, we've talked about this a lot um, since you, you became a part of our family, what was it like to grow up um, as a biracial, I always thought biracial kids are so beautiful. I always say they get the best of both worlds. I just think they're, they're just beautiful children, but sometimes it's very, very difficult mm-hmm. growing up biracial. And I believe you grew up in Wilmington. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us what it was like for you as a child to grow up biracial. So like you said, my mom is black, my dad is white. Um, and that's kind of a different narrative because Back when I was growing up, a lot of my, um, a lot of people that you saw that were biracial had either white, like white moms and black dads. It wasn't a black mom and a white dad. So that was just different in itself. Um, And I did, um, I was raised in Wilmington. um, So my community, I was raised in like the heart of Wilmington. So um, everyone in my community is black and you go outside and play and they would, call you white girl or you're like it was like you're never too or you're too white for the black people and then you're too black for the white people so it was hard like trying to figure out exactly where you fit um and then you struggle with like identity issues like okay so what do I identify as and people ask you that like you know when you go to fill out an application some people don't even let you check more than one race they say you can only check one or check other so it was just hard trying to figure out okay so what do I identify as? And now as I got, I've gotten older, I do identify, um, my mom and my dad were together. They were married, they got divorced. My mom raised us all um, and she's a black woman. So I identify as a black woman. I was raised by a black woman. That's just where I feel like I identify most. Um, so yeah, growing up, 
um, in those environments was hard because it's like, okay, where do I fit in at? And then when you do find a place where you kind of fit in at, it's still like, but do you really? And um, yeah, uh, I had mostly black friends, but there was still also like a colorism issue where it's like, okay, well, um, when stuff went bad or you weren't friends anymore, oh, she thinks she's all that because she's light skinned. It's, I'm just, I can't help who I am. Or she thinks she's all that because she has curly hair or long curly hair. That's, that's not what it is, it's just who I am. So I, um, yeah, I struggled trying to figure out what my identity was and exactly where I fit in to different groups because the black kids and white kids didn't really hang out. They weren't, we had groups in school where it was like the black kids, the white kids. And really I was mostly accepted by Hispanic groups of people. Like people thought I was Hispanic, like, and we'll come up to you speaking Spanish, yeah. And they thought I was one of them and yeah. So just trying to figure out exactly where I fit in. And my brother and my sister, we all look differently. My brother, we have the same mom and dad. My, my brother has blonde, he was, when he was little too, he had bleached blonde curly hair with blue eyes. And my sister, she's lighter than me, lighter hair. So we all look different. So it's just. It's, and your brother, his hair is still blonde. It's still blonde, It's yeah. blonde, but it's Afro-ish. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yep. it's handsome. Very handsome. Yeah. You know, um, what, how would you, what would you encourage parents to, parents of biracial children, mm -hmm. how would you encourage them to, um, to build their child's self-esteem? What would you say? I would say, um, like the biggest thing, you know, you hear um, people compare, and I would say not to compare your child with any, anyone else. They are perfect just the way they are. Biracial children, um, it, my husband and I were having this conversation yesterday. I was like, so how, when do we tell Saray, like, you know, what she is? Like, do we tell her that she's black? Do we tell her, like, you know, she's part white? Um, but just educating your children that about who they are like you are more than one race and this is what this race is like this is what this race is like but you're both and you're going to go through certain things and educate them about you know when they get older they're going to struggle with maybe figuring out where they fit in um i, I would just say just continue to educate them about both parts of who they are whether it be black and white or other races um where their roots are um and things like that that's good that's good um we found out, my mom is big on genealogy, and we found out that i part Lenny Lenape Indian. we Irish. So we have a, we, I think my great-great-grandmother was actually white. And so we, we have, my mom could tell you, like, she knows, like, the percentages. She, she did all those, all those tests. And um, I, think, I think it's interesting, and I think uh, kids should know who they are. It makes, and just um, reassuring them that it makes them special. It's not that, it's not like weird to be different. It's, it makes you special. Mm -hmm. It makes you who you are. Mm -hmm. And you're not better than anyone because mm -hmm. of what you look like. You're not better than everyone because you are mixed. I hate the term mixed because you're biracial. Um, but it's just, it's, it's special about you. So, because you use that term mixed and that mm -hmm. used to be the term and then you were learned not to say that anymore. It's, Biracial, mm -hmm. yes, or multiracial. Mm -hmm. Like we learn not to say someone is Chinese or Korean. What do you say? You just say if you don't know, you just say Asian. What what happens to Nettie? And I, I feel bad for her, but people will actually walk up to her and say, "What are you?" Mm -hmm. I think that's horrible. Like, <laughs> what um... are you? 
<laughs> What's that mean? How do you respond to that, Nettie? I'm always like, or or you get the one where people just speak, come to you speak Spanish. It's like, <laughs> I mean, I took like five years of Spanish in school, so I do understand like the normal greetings, but I'm not going to respond to you because... <laughs> You just assumed that I was Hispanic. Yeah. Um, so a lot of times I'm just like, they're like, what are you? And I'm like, um, I'm black and white. Yeah. And it's just something I had to get used to. Yeah. Um, but the term, that term mix, my mom always like hated it growing up. She's like, you're not a dog. Stop calling yourself mix. Mm. So we, it was just like kind of, she kind of like hammered that into us. Like, you're not mixed. Mm -hmm. You're biracial. Um, and that's the correct term for it, biracial. You were bullied mm -hmm. as, a, as a young girl, weren't mm -hmm. you? Yeah. 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 Because, again, like, it's like. Because of your because ethnicity. Of, yeah. I mean, there, I mean, there's other things, but that was like the main thing, like the light skinned girl. You think you're all that. And it's like, I don't think I'm all that. I never said I thought I was all that. I mean, I think I'm I think I'm pretty cool, <laughs> but I never said that I, I was all that. It's kind of like um, just, yeah, trying to figure out where you fit in at. And then if you don't fit in they kind of bully you for looking different or whatever but again I had mostly black friends so when you're a light-skinned person and all of your black friends um there's going to be somebody that has an issue with it along the line somewhere so mm -hmm. that was just the reality of it mm -hmm. thank you thank you for sharing and being vulnerable um next we have Sharon and um as I uh, mentioned earlier, uh, Sharon, um, I've, we've known her since she was a little girl. She used to have long, long hair all the way down her back um, as a little girl. But, um, you know, she's the daughter of Rick and Charlotte Edwards, and we've known them for, you know, more than 35 years. Um, so I've watched her over the years. I've watched her grow into the woman she is today. She, she grew up, um, you know, with her family having... Um, black friends, um, you know, we've done trips together. So she's used to being around black people. Um, she shared with me yesterday when we were talking, she made some mistakes over the years and some things that she regrets, you know, where her uh, African-American friends are concerned. But what, what really, um, we, were, we were talking about this yesterday, my husband and I in the car, talking about wanting to do a panel discussion. And we said, uh, how about we ask Sharon? Um, to be a part of it. And I got home and we called Lauren down and said, Lauren, what do you think of um, asking Sharon? Uh, and Lauren was like, I was just thinking the same thing. She would be a good person to have as part of the discussion. And the reason is that Sharon, um, over the last several years, has really taken it upon herself to educate herself where racism is concerned. I don't know another white person who's done that. I'm just going to be honest with you. She, and, and she's very vocal. <laughs> my, my, my kids really love her passion, I'm gonna call it. <laughs> she's very passionate about it. And, um, and, and that's good, it's good because we need passion. We don't need anger because sometimes when you're super angry, people miss the message. But Sharon has been very passionate um, in trying to educate her white friends and, and society in general. Sharon, what made you take a stand against racism and really educate yourself in that area? All right. Um, so as you discussed, uh, my childhood was um, a very diverse experience. Um, we lived in a primarily white town uh, in Pennsville, New Jersey, and sort of sandwiched between two other towns that 
had more uh, black people than we did in Pennsville. And um, my experience was, as Lisa said, spending time in, in, in black friends' homes. Um, I spent many weekends in Pennsville, New Jersey, in, in my friend's home. And um, yeah, I, I've known you all for a very long time. My Sunday school teacher was Miss Jeanette, Miss um, Jeanette Blanchard. Um, the Steeds, uh, Keisha, was a very close friend of mine growing up. So I've had the opportunity of, of spending that time, and that was much different than the people that I grew up with, um, because Pennsville is a very, very, very white town. And um, uh, I remember we moved a lot when I was a kid, and we had we moved back to Woodstown, and I really enjoyed being in Woodstown because. In school, I felt like I did when I was at church because I had I had the different ethnicities in my school. And then my parents moved back, made the decision to move back to Pennsville. And this was when I was in fifth grade and I would be going into sixth grade. And I remember I was so upset. I was so upset because I knew how prejudiced Pennsville was. And I didn't want that experience. And so I made, I was very aware of the differences at a young age of black and white, um, Hispanic, uh, uh, Latinx. Um, you know, I, I was very aware of all those things. And so the way that I thought I would combat racism at that age was to be a good white person. <laughs> so, you know, being a good white person means you have black friends, you have friends of different ethnicities. Um, you smile at black people when you walk by them. Uh, you try to be less threatening. <laughs> you know, you do all those things. And I was, I was very accepted in black circles growing up. Very, very accepted. And um, as I grew up and, and continued my life, um, you know, I began to live in different areas. And, you know, slowly over time, I realized my circles became more and more white. <laughs> You know, it became less and less diverse. Um, I still had my black friends from when I was growing up, but, you know, meeting people, it, it just seemed to be more and more white. And um, I noticed that as I got older, I started to have more difficulty um, effectively connecting with people of different colors. And, and I really didn't understand that. And, and I had a couple experiences at work where I, where I, I was like, I don't, I don't understand. Like, I'm a, I'm a good white person. Like I, I I'm, <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm trying, I'm really trying to be, uh, you know, open-minded and accepting. And I'm like, what am I doing wrong? And so when that begins to happen, um, I really enjoy, uh, personal development, and I will say this, doing anti-racism work is not personal development work. I'm just going to say that right there, but, but I, I do that. And so because of that, I started to look for opportunities on how to educate myself. And I moved to a town in Maryland called Chestertown, Maryland. And so I was looking for opportunities to meet people, and I happened to find that they were doing a, a uh, weekend workshop called Undoing Racism. And I thought, oh, this is great. I can meet people who share the same ideals. Again, good white person. And, you know, I, I, I can meet people and, and connect with, with people who I, I share these ideas and values. And I will tell you, that weekend changed my life. It was one of the hardest 
weekends I have ever gone through. I'll tell you, we had, people didn't come back. Like, so we met first on a Friday night, and, I'm, and it might have been Friday night. I remember we're in the middle of a discussion, and a white guy got up and walked out and never came back. Um, it, 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 it was very, very impactful. Um, and, and the information I learned, I knew some of the, some of the information, but I, but I didn't. And I think, you know, one of the challenges that we have is when you hear racism or racist, there are so many different definitions. There's not one definition. And I can tell you, I think that's by design. Because if we had a definition, we could unite and we knew, we would know what it is that we have to weed out. But because we have so many different definitions, well, what your version of racism is, is it my, is it my version of racism, right? And because I didn't experience it, well then, you know, it's not racism. I'm not a racist. Um, or, you know, I have a black friend. My, back, my black friend says I'm okay. You know, no. Um, so, so there were things that I learned in that weekend that were really impactful. Um, you know, I, I cried talking about my story, you know, white tears. That's something you can look at. Um, you can look up. <laughs> um, What's that mean? White tears? Oh, that's when white people are like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I am so sorry. Your experiences, I had no idea. Oh my God. And you're like, okay, Karen, thank you. <laughs> you know, no. <laughs> the, you know, and the other thing is too, as white people, and, and, I, and this is one of my concerns about tonight, I wanted to make sure that I was invited here. I really wanted to make sure Lisa, you know, told me what we wanted to talk about because as a white person, it's very easy when I come into a space to center myself. And what that means is, I am important. I am important because in this culture, just being white, I am important. That's Sharon, that takes me to, um, yes. I think it's a great lead in um, because there's another term I'd like for you to define. And I think what you're beginning to discuss, yep. define the term white privilege. So, um, yeah, so white privilege. So. As I lead into that, you know, I, I kept talking about how I, I thought I was a good white person. And uh, one of the things I learned in that weekend workshop was that that's actually an overt form of white supremacy. That is a socially acceptable form of, of a white supremacist ideal. Because um, I'm going to go... I'm kind of, I'm, I'm jumping ahead. I have notes because I, I wanted to make sure I had it. But um, there's a really great article written by Peggy McIntosh. She actually wrote it in 1989, and it's called White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. In trying to be a good white person, really that's trying to be not racist. And that, again, is an, is an idea of white supremacy. And so I was continuing in a way that I wasn't aware that I was perpetuating white supremacy. And the way that you combat that is to be an anti-racist. And um, 
there's, before I get into the white privilege um, article, uh, there is a book called uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist by um, Ibram uh, Kendi. Repeat that title again. Somebody might want to get yep. that book. How to Be an Anti-Racist. Uh, and he says, one either allows racial inequities to persevere as a racist or confronts racial inequities as an anti-racist. There is no in-between safe space of not racist. The claim of not racist neutral neutrality is a mask for racism. So one of the, one of the main definitions I've heard of racism is racism is prejudice plus power. And so in order for me to combat white supremacy and to combat racism is to use my power to disrupt the system. So our society is, is, a, is a racially constructed society where someone who is identified as white has the power. And so one of the ways I can be an anti-racist is to acknowledge that and to, and to acknowledge that that is a type of privilege. So that is where you get the idea of white privilege. And I know that is a very controversial idea for some. And some, of, some people will say that you know, it doesn't exist. Again, that is an overt form of white supremacy. <laughs> so um, if you would like to learn more about it, um, if you are a white person watching, um, there's a great article by Peggy McIntosh, and it's called White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. And the way that she describes white pri privilege is this, an invisible package of unearned assets, which I can count on cashing in each day, but about which I was meant to remain oblivious. White privilege is like an invisible, weightless knapsack of special provisions, maps, passports, code books, visas, clothes, tools, and blank checks. And in the article, she um, cites one of her colleagues, Elizabeth Minich, um, and, and it says that whites are taught to think of their lives as morally neutral, normative, and average, and also ideal, so that when we work to benefit others, this is seen as work that will allow them to be more like us. So when you think of white privilege, I was thinking about it today, and I'm like, how am I going to talk about this? And I was getting ready to wash my hair. And I was like, oh my god, it's right here. When you go to CVS, yes. <laughs> you go to CVS and you go to buy shampoo and conditioner, what do you see? There's a huge aisle of all these products. Guess who those products are for? Caucasian hair. Sharon. Now, I have, I have went to manager after manager. But my, sometime my husband walks away because if I can't go in a store mm -hmm. in 2020 and Thanks. find products for my hair, something's wrong with your management here. Yeah. I've done it at Target. I've done it at Walgreens in Ocean City, Maryland. I've done it at Kirkwood High. I've done it. He, Jerome walks away from me. But 
That's unacceptable. Yeah. And I, I have something to add about that. So, um, so yeah, so it's all white caucasian, it's, it's all products for white caucasian, and then you get that little tiny section for ethnic care. But it's expanding. I don't know if you've noticed, it's expanding. I believe it's because white girls like me are now embracing their natural texture. <laughs> and guess what we're doing? We're using some of those products. So we want those products in the store, because when we go to store, we buy those products. So, um, yeah, I mean, that is just a simple, a simple, simple example. In this article that she wrote, she actually lists 50 different things, and something that you talked about is actually one thing that I had here. So these are some examples of white privilege. Um, I can avoid spending time with people whom I was trained to mistrust and who have learned to mistrust my kind or me. I can be pretty sure that my neighbors in such a location will be neutral or pleasant to me. I can go shopping alone most of the time, pretty well assured that I will not be followed or harassed. I can turn on the television or open to the front page of the paper or magazine, insert your favorite piece of media, and see people of my race widely represented. When I am told about our national heritage or about civilization, I am shown that people of my color made it what it is. I can be sure that my children will be given curricular materials that testify to the existence of their race. I can arrange to protect my children most of the time from people who might not like them. I do not have to educate my children to be aware of systemic racism for their own daily physical protection. And I think we're getting to the point where we can say, I can go for a jog without being profiled and potentially shot. I can relax on my couch and not be concerned that somebody might mistakenly, drunkenly, think that my apartment is theirs and open up the door and when they realize it, shoot me. Just everyday things that we do. I don't have to think about it. And, you know, early on in this work, so I've only been doing this for, for three years. Like, I've only really been super educating myself for three years. And, um... It can be overwhelming, and it can be really uncomfortable. And I got to the point where I was overwhelmed and uncomfortable, and so I stopped following di different things and everything, and I was like, oh, I can turn this off. It was really, really like, oh, I'm t I've turned this off. I've muted this. I don't have to listen to it. That is my white privilege. And, you know, one of the reasons that I started doing this work is because, again, like I said, I thought I was a good white person. I love my friends of different ethnicities. I love them. I do this work to honor them. So if I'm doing this work to honor them and they can't turn it off, why do I think I can turn it off? So I need to be comfortable being uncomfortable, because guess what? That is their daily experience. Excellent. Excellent, excellent. So it's not right 
that I continue to just move around this, in this world unaware and unaffected. You know, I, I need to be responsible and be an active participant in this. So, um, so yeah, that, I, I think I just want to make sure that was all I had written down about white privilege. Um, I know I had some visuals, and um, the audiovisual team was very sweet. Um, there is a really great visual of white privilege um, that I found on Instagram. And uh, it was created by Courtney on Design. She's actually a Korean-American. Um, but it was promoted by, a, um, by an Instagram account that I love called um, At The Conscious Kid. They're really good for resources for children and for teachers. And, um, but they, they promoted this. And this is actually like four or five slides. Um, I would encourage you to go out to that Instagram account and look at it. Um, there was something that they said. I, I took photos of it in my phone, so I, if I didn't have access, I could share it. But um, I know a lot of times people get uncomfortable with white privilege because they think, well, uh, my life's been hard. Nothing's been handed to me. I've had to work for it. You know, I... But the thing is that white privilege, and this was on the slide, and I'm quoting it, white privilege doesn't mean your life hasn't been hard. It means your skin tone isn't one of the things that's making it harder. And, and white privilege isn't the only kind of privilege. There's male privilege. And I'm going to put in parentheses white male privilege. There's ableism. So if you if you're able to you you know if you're able to walk if you have two hands I mean I have a friend who is in a wheelchair she cannot access certain things you know I have another friend who only has she was born with one hand <laughs> you know so so there are different kinds of privileges but ra but racial racial privilege is a big one so Sharon um, question yes actually something aside I have to share this make. Lighten it up a little bit. Somebody just texted me and said, Sharon's my new BFF, <laughs> and she doesn't even know it. <laughs> I thought that was cute. Um, how can white people show support and solidarity um, during this time? I, I, I want to interject one other thing. Yeah. First thing Sunday morning, you know, we don't talk to Sharon on a regular basis. We're friends on Facebook. You know, we see her a few times a year, um, but we, we, we remain connected. First thing Sunday morning, um, and nobody knew what we were going to do on Sunday morning having this conversation, Sharon inboxed Lauren and said, I've been thinking about you and your family. I just want to know how you guys are doing. First thing Sunday morning, I don't even know if you'd open your eyes yet when you woke up, you saw it. She was just getting <laughs> dressed. And she said, I've been thinking about you and your family. Didn't she, Rome? Been thinking about you and your family and just wanted to check on you and see how you guys are doing. That, to me, is huge. So answer that question, Sharon. In your opinion, how can uh, white people show support and solidarity um, during this time? So I think one of the things, um, <laughs> first, recognize that your black friends are in pain right now. I think that's the first thing. Um, or at least it, everyone has different 
feeling, so I can't speak, and I'm speaking in general terms, but just to know that this is not an easy time for them. You know, if you think about this last month, you know, well, you know, for the last couple of months, we've all been stuck in a house, quarantined, some of us have young children, some of us have been homeschooling, and your black friends are also dealing with the constant racial injustices. And these things are just actively being sh shown across, across the internet um, and constantly being aired and viewed. And, and, then, and then, you know, we have the protests. And I will just say our nation's leadership is not supportive. So there's a lot of stuff that's going on that they're dealing with that, again, we can turn off. Um, I, I watched it this week. One of the things I was seeing is that, you know, uh, and I, I shared it on my Facebook page. After experiencing all this and the heaviness of, this, the heaviness of last week and this weekend, on Monday, your black friends were expected to show up at work and act like everything's okay. And I can tell you they're distracted. Um, and I, I, I watched my team. No one said anything. <laughs> I just watched. It was like, oh, how, how was your weekend? How's everybody? Great, hey, hey. And I'm like, are, are, is this for real? <laughs> you know, and, and I, I reached out to a couple of my colleagues just to check in on them. And, and one I hadn't talked to in quite some time. And, She's moved into a new role, and so I was like, hey, you know, I've been thinking about you. How's your new job? I was so glad for uh, Tawanda Cuffey, because she posted something Tawanda, yeah. Monday, and she was like, I am not okay. I'm not here for small talk. And I was like, oh, that was wrong. <laughs> And I, I, and I hadn't, and I, I must have, I probably jabbered my colleague around 10, 11, and, she, you know, she hadn't responded, and I, and I just said, you know, it was super tone-deaf way for me to try to make connection with you. I said, I just want you to know I'm thinking about you, and I'm here if you need anything. I'm here to support you. Full so stop. So reaching out. So reaching out is mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. And, and, and when you say, how are you, mean it. How are you takes on a completely different meaning right now for mm -hmm. folks. So yeah. if you're going to ask the question, be ready. And this leads me to really my first point, listen. Just listen. Don't listen to respond. Just listen to understand. That's and if you don't know what to say, say, I don't know what to say. Mm -hmm. That's good. Mm -hmm. You know, and don't do the white tears. Don't be like, I had no idea this was happening. Stop. <laughs> That's good. Just stop. <laughs> That's good. Like, you, you know, you really do know. Because I think if somebody, somebody I saw that, that I'm friends with on Facebook posted, you know, like, would you trade places with a black person? And if you say no, then you know. So, yeah, so listen. And then 
I think the other way that you can support is to educate yourself. And, and I'm of the belief that you don't ask your black friends to educate you. Don't. Don't ask them to do extra emotional labor for you. Because mm. you're just passing that off on them. Well. You do it yourself. And you can't tell me that you, I, you know, bless their hearts. I know people are just getting open to this stuff. And they're like, what can I do? Google. Go out on Instagram. It's out there. Your friends are posting stuff. There's plenty of resources. Um, you know, I, I can certainly give you some. Feel free to reach out to me. Um, if, if you're friends with me on Facebook, you've seen I've posted some information. There's, a, there's an excellent Google Doc out there that's been going around that has a lot of resources compiled. I'll be honest, I haven't been able to read a lot of the books that I might suggest to you. That is one of my goals this year is to try to read one book a month. Well, you, you've been doing some stuff. You just But I have. But yeah, I have. Yeah. Part of it is because I was in school, right, and so yeah. I didn't have that time. time to read. Mm -hmm. But I definitely keep myself informed by reading articles. I listen to podcasts. I listen to podcasts a lot um, because that's just easy, yeah. easy um, easy to consume, but I also follow um, different anti-racism uh, activists on Facebook and Instagram, uh, you know, who, who can definitely uh, keep you informed and, and provide you with resources. Well, thank you, Sharon. You're thank welcome. you so much. That was excellent. excellent. Can, I, can I say one last thing? Sure, go ahead. So speaking of one of the people that I follow, um, as I said, I, it, it can be overwhelming, and the other thing I know a lot of times white people don't say anything because they are afraid they're going to say something wrong. Just know you're going to do it. Just make sure that you're in a relationship with people and you have people who can hold you accountable. Um, but um, there was a tweet by um, uh, Ijuma Olu. She said, the beauty of anti-racism anti is that you don't have to pretend to be free of racism to be an anti-racist. Anti-racism is the commitment to fight racism wherever you find it, including in yourself, and, the only, and it's the only way forward. So I think that's a lot of, I mean, that, that takes a little bit of the pressure off. And I think that's one thing that not being a racist, there's a lot of pressure on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. that's good. Good. Thank you so much. Outstanding. Outstanding. Thank you to all of our panelists. You all did a great job. Thank you so much for, for sharing from your personal experience. And um, we just really appreciate it. We do have a few questions that I want to ask. Um, and I'll ask either Lauren or Nettie to answer this. Um, how do you encourage your daughter, who is seven, who thinks that her thinks in her head that blonde hair and blue eyes is more beautiful than brown hair and brown eyes? because this is mostly what she sees. Or straight hair is prettier than natural kinky curly hair. I would say, um, what, what, is she, what is she viewing? Right, that's um, if, you, if she's watching, I know my daughter, um, when she gets on her iPad, she can be viewing um, kids. She likes watching kids play with their toys instead of, I don't know. It's like a thing. Kids watch kids play with their toys now. Um, and a lot of the kids that are playing with their toys that are doing this um, thing, and it's like, I guess it's like 
the thing in now, right, right now, um, they're white kids. So um, I would say watch what she's viewing. Um, show her more diversity. Um, if you show her other little girls who like, on, there's a lot of um, little girls on Instagram and even on YouTube that you can find that embrace their moms or um, embracing their natural hair and they're embracing, embracing their natural hair and their skin tone um, and their moms are doing different styles with their hair um, and just, just have fun with it. Show her that, that it's, there's beauty in that and that makes her who she is. Um, I know Saray, she doesn't like getting her hair done, but I'm on YouTube watching hair videos, and if I have it mirrored onto my TV, she's watching them do their natural curly hair too. So. That's good. That's good. What I used to do um, when Lauren was a little girl, I would buy her dolls. That's exactly what I was going to yeah. say. I bought I her dolls say, that looked like her. Yeah, representation. Mm -hmm. um, American Girl dolls. But you can get something even cheaper that yeah. you can design them to look like yeah. you. Yeah. And just surround them, whether it's different movies or whether you do your daughter's, you, you mirror your daughter's hairstyle. Like I like that Nettie does that with Saray. Saray might have twists one day, she might have braids another day, she might have a fro the next day, but Nettie, is very, Nettie and our whole family is very intentional of you're beautiful how you are. Yeah. Your natural hair is beautiful. It doesn't matter if it's curly or straight, braided straight back or in an afro, it's all beautiful. And she'll be on FaceTime, look at my hair, auntie, look. So I, and, and you what, just have to encourage. What we did with, with Lauren is like, in a, it doesn't have to be American Girl doll. That was something she was into. But Lauren, you know, her first one was Addie. No, it wasn't. It was the Hispanic girl. What, what? Josefina. Josefina. I had every. I, I had a very so diverse collection. Lauren had a diverse collection. collection. <laughs> she didn't just say, I, I was going to say Addie. Addie's the black one, she's, right? Addie's the slave. Yeah, one she's the slave. And Josefina. But she had different, different ethnicities. And, and that's what we tried to do with our children. Our kids were raised around different ethnicities. I wanted them to be used to being around people who didn't look like them. So that in this world, when they grew up, that it wasn't the first time when they go to a job interview, they knew how to talk to people who didn't look like them. Can That's I add really something good. to that too? Mm -hmm. um, growing up, I struggled with having curly hair um, to the point where I straightened my hair every chance I got. Um, my mom wouldn't let me do my own hair growing up because she didn't want me to damage my curl pattern. But as soon as I was out of her house, and as soon as I got a flat iron in my hand, I straightened my hair so bad that I damaged it. Like I wanted to straight that bad. And it took me, when I got pregnant with Saray, I was like, like I don't, older, yeah, I realized, I was like, I don't want my daughter to have this issue. I want her to see her mom embracing her natural hair. So also, um, if you have naturally curly hair or a natural texture, show your daughter that you are embracing your natural hair as well. So. But it's okay if you want straight hair. Yes, I mean, it's okay. Whatever. It's okay. Don't, yeah. it's Just okay. don't feel like you have to, to, to do fit it. in. Right. That's yeah. right. I know I did that too because mm -hmm. I went to a predominantly white school and I had a perm. I kept my hair straight because it's it's not that you wanted to fit in, but you didn't want to stand out. Yeah. You didn't want to get all the questions. Mm -hmm. You don't want somebody petting you like you're an animal. And it's work. Yeah, and it's a lot of work. It's work. So. Yeah, Lauren, th that's something because like the, the school that she went to, one girl actually asked her if she could touch her lips. Can I touch your lips? Because Lauren had... She asked me and reached in with a hand <laughs> and said, can I touch your lips? Because I have full lips. And I just like dodged back and I was just like... I was like, what just happened? Like, like, I was just like dumbfounded. Just, yeah. uh, next question. We're gonna just take a couple more questions and then we'll wrap up for tonight. Um, 
and we and we you know we know we can't cover everything tonight. Um, Sharon, this question is for you. Um, if if you are in a conversation, you ha or someone ha someone that you're around happens to be making racist kind of comments, how do you handle that? Uh, I will tell you in the past, I have not handled it well. In my house, I don't allow it, but I was at someone else's house, and it ha and I it happened, and I was like. I reacted because I have trouble hi hiding my reaction. And my, my reaction was, I can't. And I pushed away from the table and walked away. <laughs> That's not the way to handle it. Um, I think the way to handle it, though, is, is, is to call it out. Is to call it out and say it's not appropriate. Um, I, I, I think you don't do it in, in an angry way. You know, you don't... Um, but, but I think it's important to call it out and, and say that it's not correct. Um, I know that's something that I, I need to work on um, because as we were, as Lisa was describing me, passion, my passion can come out as anger. So I can be a little angry and snarky. Um, so I know that that's something I need to work on. And, and I'm actually, one of the books I'm reading is called Nonviolent Communication. And that's all about how to communicate in a way that's compassionate to yourself, but also compassionate to the other, to the other person. Um, and there's a lot about um, not um, evaluating what someone thinks, more about observation, but, but being able to have difficult conversations in, in a better way. So that's something uh, that I'm going to work on myself, but, I, but now that I know what I know, because that situation happened before I actually went through this program, now I would say, not appropriate. And, and that's actually what I would say. Tom will tell you. I've done it. I go, not appropriate. Thank you. So you just confront it. Just confront it, yeah. And don't, and don't let it fester. And I think it's, it's good if, if, you, if this happens, particularly if, if, um, if you, you know, if, it doesn't matter who's around. You just let them know it's not appropriate. Right. That's good. Yeah. Uh, Nettie, this question I think is a good question for you. Um, but, of course, in any of these questions, if anybody else has some input, you can feel free to. Um, chime in, but I'm going to start with directing it to Nettie. What keys could you give to bi a biracial person, to biracial people who are confused about standing on the side of black friends, but getting trouble from white friends? Well, <laughs> um, I, would, I would say it's not really like a, I saw a post today on, on Facebook it's not a black and white issue. It's, it's not, I know that there's race intertwined in this, but it's right and wrong. Right, it's a matter of humanity. It, yeah, it's a matter of humanity. It's not of, if you're, I don't, I don't know how, I don't wanna be um, rude about it, but it shouldn't really matter what your white friends are gonna think about you. Um, even what your black friends are gonna think about you. It's, it's just about being right, being, being right in the situation. Um, and that's really all I can say. I mean, that's all I can really say. It's, it's just right or wrong. <laughs> I can't add to biracial. Um, 
But what I can tell you is, is that one of the things that was, was mentioned is, is really knowing who you are. Mm -hmm. Affirmation is huge. That's good. Mm -hmm. And for me, um, it started in my household, um, knowing who I was as a, as a uh, black person, um, growing up in a Christian household. Um, but the other part for me, in my experience, was where I, where I, uh, there are people in my life, and then where I ended up going to school. I went to school in, in D.C., and I don't want it to be about the school I went to or um, being in D.C. necessarily. But as I learned more about who I was, greatly helped me understand uh, the confidence I needed. Like you talked about um, from a white perspective what, what white people can do, but I learned what I needed to do if you did nothing. Okay, so my experiences from either my household, uh, my community, and then my school exposed me to who I am. So it affirmed that I could be, as a black person, as light as milk and as dark as the street. I could be from any state in the Union, or I could be from Europe and from Africa. And, and my hair could be curly, or it could be kinky. It could be short, it could be long. And, and as I learned more about all of who I was, all of what I could look like, all of what we've accomplished, it affirmed me so that when I went out into an environment that was sometimes hostile towards me just because of the way I looked, I was okay because I knew who I was. So I think affirmation is one of the strongest things that you can do with your children in terms of, like you said, letting them know who they are, their history, and what they're all about, and where they've come from is huge. That's good. That's, that's really good. And I, I'm not going to try to spiritualize things, but that's one of the things that's helped me, helped me growing up, is knowing who I was, who I am in Christ. Exactly. Yep. And, you know, I, I am, in, when I was in my previous uh, career in the legal profession, you know, most of the people that I worked with didn't look like me. But I declared every day that no weapon formed against me would prosper. The color of my skin would not work against me. And I declared the word of God, and it, it worked for me. Now, my husband would sometimes say, Lisa, you don't experience what I experience because you're a light-skinned woman. And maybe some of that is true. But I, the word of God worked for me in that situation, in those situations. I, I was blessed on every job that I had. And I believe the affirmations from the word of God that I declared over my life really worked for me. And when I left that career, I left highly respected as a black woman. Yeah. They didn't say they didn't see color. They would say, you know, Lisa's black, but she's fair. You know, you know all those things. I, you know, I left with a good... Um, reputation and an honorable reputation um, as a black woman. Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that is the ultimate affirmation, I think. Um, I think all of what I said, I'm glad you mentioned it, is, is that growing up in a Christian household and, and Christ being a part of my life, I know that that is why doing all of the right stuff with the police or law enforcement wasn't just doing things right, it was the blessing and protection of God because a lot of people have done things right and they still didn't get out of the situation. So, and you're absolutely right. I mean, knowing who I am as, a, as an African-American all, and all of what we've done or contributed to this country and, and to civilization and all of that, 
Um, I think God just takes it to a whole nother level. And it, it, it's what keeps you from, again, disliking people who may look at you the wrong way. You know what I mean? You, you, you're not bitter. You're not upset. And, um, and, and if anything, you, you, you want to pray for them because you want them to experience what you've experienced through Christ. And I think that's yes. the ultimate yeah. affirmation of who yes. you are. Yes, I agree. I agree. That's really, really good. Um, I believe that's basically the questions that we have. Um, somebody did ask me, and I'm not sure that we're prepared to discuss this, either Lauren or Sharon um, <laughs> may be able to at least define the term. Systematic oppression. I feel like systematic oppression comes from systematic racism. Would you agree? That's what I would think. Institutional yeah. racism. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So sy systemic racism, systemic. obviously, systemic or institutionalized mm -hmm. racism, mm -hmm. um, you're oppressed. Like just simple things, not being able to live in the same neighborhoods, not being able to have access to the same health care, being redlined into, into certain areas, the crack epidemic versus the opi opioid epidemic. Like, oh, that's oh, interesting. That's a really interesting topic. Um, but that's it's oppression. Whereas like now we're in an age where opioid dependency is a crisis and it's really horrible. It's just horrible. And then when we have the crack era, and the CIA admitted to putting it in the black communities and our prison population quadrupled, that's systematic oppression. Because a system, me and my dad have been going back and forth because he's been saying the system is broken and I've been saying the system is working how they wanted it to work. People are just calling it out now. <laughs> um, and black people are oppressed because of the system that's in place. It was never built for them. It was built on us, but it was never built for us. So we grew up in the projects. Y'all hear us say that a lot. Mm -hmm. Jerome grew up on one side of town, West Side Court. I grew up on Anderson Drive, east side of town. You know why they called the projects? It was a project. It was never meant to last. It was a project for housing. It was an experiment. But the effects of it last. Yes. And that's the oppression. That's like the generational dysfunction. That's why we have black kids are more likely to go right to prison. Like they call it the school to prison pipeline. And there's the affluenza thing, but we have kids in the hood that are suffering from PTSD. I have cousins that have seen dead bodies. You're not supposed to see stuff on like that. On their front step. On, yeah, dead bodies on their front step. You're not supposed to see stuff like that. And that is traumatic. And then you wonder why kids are getting high. Kids aren't finishing college. Why kids are having babies and it's just, that's oppression. It's, a, it's based off of the system that was never built for black people. And, and, and the thing is, is that earlier uh, Lauren talked about, you know, the black cat and, and crows being black and what have you. But when you talk about being 13% of the population um, and the amount of that 13% that are incarcerated, okay, and then you think of the images that are tied to the 13% that really shouldn't be because it's the face of the poor, but there are more other poor than the 13%. It's disproportionate, but if you look at the roles of people that need assistance across state after state after state after state, it is not people of color that dominate the total number. And, but I didn't know that growing up where I grew up in Philadelphia and in DC until I moved to the Midwest where 
uh, because of the work that I do dealing with uh, the, the Medicaid enrollment. You know, a million people on Medicaid and 250,000 of them are black. The other 800 plus are white. But if you ask someone, what does that Medicaid mom look like? And so, so there's a lot of association with, uh, with black and certain crimes. And the reality is, is that, it's, like you said earlier, it's not black on black crime. Most people commit crimes within their race. So why is there black on black crime when in the other neighborhoods pick the ethnicity, pick the race, where they're the ones who are robbing or murdering or selling drugs and, you know, we don't own the ghetto, but yet that is tied to us also. There are many. Say that again. We don't own the ghetto and then we perpetuate it. We talk about the ghetto when we, but for some reason, somehow or another, when there were ghettos in the early 1900s, when it wasn't tied to a particular race, but it was tied to being poor, now it's tied to us because it's part of the whole thing of, oh, it's something less. You know what I mean? There's all of these things that are kind of out there that once you, again, it's affirmation. When you know who you are, mm -hmm. those things can't touch you. That's, that's, that's key. I love that, Greg. Because the word of God, in my opinion, makes all the difference. It may, it's, it's made the whole difference in my life, in my husband's life, in our children's lives. It, the word of God makes a difference. We could be a statistic. We could be, we could, somebody could be writing about us, you know, one day. You know, I would tell my son, I don't want you to be a negative statistic. Do you remember me saying that, Jay? I don't want you, I want to raise responsible citizens. And we raise them using the word of God. And, and that's what's made the difference in our lives. This has been excellent tonight. Thank you all so much for sharing. Um, it's just, just outstanding. You know, we know this isn't the end. We've got a lot of work to do in our country. We do, but it starts here. And hopefully those of you who are viewing tonight, something was triggered on the inside of you to want to help to make a difference. We want, we want to facilitate change. We want change in our country. We want change in our community. We want change. We don't want to continue seeing these horrible uh, images on television. We want to see things start to turn. And we can do it, you know, each one of us has our own sphere of influence, our own circle. And if we just begin to speak and listen I think things can change. Pastor? Wow, this was great, guys. Really, really great. Um, so many things that were said. And the wonderful thing about live stream is that you can go back and view this again, get the information that was given. And um, I like what you said towards the end, Greg and Lisa, about uh, identity. Because, you know, when you know who you are, no matter what they call you, you live above that. And that has been the thing that has helped me. I, I remember working on a job and a guy pointed in my face and called me the N-word. And he said it more than once. And the thing that kept me from removing his teeth was my identity, knowing who I was in Christ. Because even though I'm a Christian man, I still hurt when things like that are said. And I think one of the messages we've got to get across to our sons and to our daughters, and I think Sharon, you hit on it, educate yourself. There's information out there that we can all educate ourselves and work on the way that we think, because if we don't change the way we think, then we're not going to change our communities. 
education is one of the ways that we change our thinking. Thank you for viewing tonight and tuning in with us. And I want to encourage you to go back over this, share this, uh, this, uh, this time, this, this discussion. This is what we're having. And of course, tonight, we couldn't cover everything, as my wife said. We couldn't go in depth into everything. But I believe we've done enough to, to jar your thinking, to get you to think, and to educate yourself. And as we come up to the election in November, you can make a change with your vote. And, and I want to encourage you, if you're not registered, get yourself registered to vote and use your vote as, a, as your voice in your community. Educate yourself and be kind. When you see someone speak, be kind. That's the human thing to do. Be nice to someone. And, and if you're a Christian or a child of God, and even if you're not a Christian, just be kind to people. And I believe that you can be the change that we want to see. We're so glad you joined us today. We'd love for you to head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. You can also find previous episodes there. Mercy Multiplied is a nonprofit organization completely funded by our donors. We're incredibly grateful and couldn't do what we do without them. If you want to find out more how you can partner with us financially, head over to mercymultiplied.com. <laughs>